Okay, uh, if you're new or visiting, welcome. Uh, we're glad you're here and we hope you stick around for supper afterwards. Uh, if you're a regular, you would know that we normally have question time uh, here uh, after the sermon. We're not going to have that tonight though. Uh, we're going to do something different, so don't uh, mind. I mean, don't try to send me text messages. You can just talk to me afterwards. Uh, that'll be fine. Uh, obviously, what's been mentioned to you is that we're studying the book of James. And if you're a bit sad, hopefully you should be, uh, this is the final sermon on the book of James. It's the end, the end of James. Now, my hope is, is that this series has been both helpful, but also hard hitting. My hope is, is that this book has been a mirror for a lot of us that points out our flaws and our imperfections and how we can become more like Christ. My hope is, is that for some of you here, that this book has been quite hard hitting. And it's maybe, I guess, rebuked you from your, your nominalism and your lukewarm faith and help you see the need to have an authentic faith, one that loves Jesus passionately. But also my hope is for many of you here who love Jesus, that this book has been one that is chiseling you to become more like him. And my hope is as we go through this book that you realize that even when you read this book, when you're like, I don't know, 70, 80, 90, if you're lucky, 100 years old, when you read this book, you're still going to be like, oh man. Like, how do I do this? How do I rejoice during trials? How do I not show favoritism? So this book is always going to be hard-hitting. And so my hope is, as we've been going through this book, it hasn't been a burden upon your soul, but instead it's been an encouragement. An encouragement that Christ wants to see progress in you and not perfection. Because that's what Jesus did. And so that's my hope. My hope is that from this series, you've been looking inward. You've been looking at your own faith, and you've been thinking about your own faith, and whether or not it's authentic. But also, as I've been talking about at times, I'm hoping that you look outward and you see the need and the importance of authentic faith, not just for your own soul, but for other people as well. Last week, I talked about McCrindle Research and the census data, and I've done that a few times. This week, I want to give you a quote from an atheist. And it's a quote that basically backs up the same sort of point I'm making in terms of how your authentic faith matters for other people. It's quite a famous one, but I'll read it to you anyway. It's by a guy called Brennan Manning. He'll come up on the screen. He says this, The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians, who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door, and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Throughout this series in the book of James, we've been talking about authentic faith, and in particular, its relationship to different topics. You know, for example, the relationship between authentic faith and trials, uh, between that and deception, between favoritism, between uh, works and deeds, and uh, your tongue, and humility and arrogance, and patience and perseverance. And tonight, James is going to be talking about the relationship between authentic faith and prayer. Authentic faith and prayer. And I think if there's any topic out of all the ones that we've tackled uh, this term in the book of James that shows the gap between what we believe and what we do, I think prayer is it. I think prayer is it. And so in a moment, I'm going to unpack James chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, keep them open there. But before we do that, we're going to pray. But even before we pray, there's something I need to say. Um, as a pastor, one of, there's many things that I'm called to do. But one of the things I'm called to do is to pray for you guys, is to lead you guys as well in in prayer and to model to you how important prayer is and the power of prayer and to try and cultivate a, a culture of prayer in our church. And as I was reading this text this week, I just felt rebuked for how poor of a job I've done as your pastor. And so I want to say I'm sorry. 
I don't come to this text on prayer being like an expert on it. I come knowing that my heart longs to pray a lot more. And my heart longs to see our church pray a lot more. And so I'm sorry for that. And my hope is that you forgive me for that, but also you'd help me in this. And so if you're someone who's got some ideas to help us pray more as a church, please come chat to me afterwards. I'd love to do that. With all that in mind, let's pray now, though, and ask for God's help before we dig into this text. Father God, we are thankful that you are an amazing Father who listens to us, who loves us, who desires for us to talk to you and pray to you. Lord, I know my heart longs to pray more, both in my own walk, but also for my church. And Father, we just pray that tonight you may be with us by your Spirit, that you may convict us and help us to be able to pray more. Lord, help us not to leave here with guilty, burdensome hearts, but instead hearts that have faith in the power of prayer and hearts that are encouraged to pray more to a good Heavenly Father. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Like I said, this uh, passage is about prayer. Uh, If you're wondering, how do you know this, Joel? Well, if you actually look at this passage in verse 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, the word prayer is mentioned. I think this passage is about prayer. At the same time, you're probably thinking, okay, so how are we going to approach this passage? Well, in verses 13 to 15, we're going to talk about the timing of prayer. And then in verses 16 to 18, we're going to talk about the power of prayer. And then in verses 19 to 20, we're going to talk about something else. It's not prayer, but we'll get there. Now, heads up, you're probably thinking already that the main application to this sermon is going to be that we should pray more. And that's true, okay? But can I say something? I don't think any of us here at like supper afterwards are going to be like blown away by that application. You know, like I don't think Travis is going to be talking to Pete and be like, hey, Pete, did you know we should pray more? Like, like, wasn't that crazy what Joel said? Like, I don't think that's going to happen. And so even though that is the main application from this sermon, I've actually got another deeper application or deeper question that I want you to be thinking through as we go through this text. And the question is this. It's quite a simple one, but it's quite an important one. Why don't you pray more? Why don't you pray more? So as we we go through this text, I want you to be thinking through, why don't I pray more? Why don't I pray? And I'm going to give you a few hints as to why I think uh, you don't pray more or you don't pray, but maybe you've got some other deep issues that you need to talk to God about and uh, figure out for yourself. Anyway, saying all that, let's dig into the text. Let's look at James, and I'm going to read to us verses 13 to 14. James says this, Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. The timing of prayer, the timing of prayer. In this passage, James gives us three different situations as to when we should pray. And the first one is when we're in trouble, when we're in trouble. Now, hopefully you know, because we've talked about it a few times, but uh, the original audience to the letter of James were people who weren't in Jerusalem where James was as the pastor of the Jerusalem church, but instead they were people that were scattered throughout the Middle East and throughout Asia. These were people who, as a result of persecution, were not in their hometown, but instead were in new cities looking for new jobs and trying to, I guess, build new families and new friendship circles. These were people who would have been homesick, poor, and still being persecuted. They were going through hardship and troubles. And James says to them, pray. But how about us? Are we going through any troubles? My guess is we are. From what I know of some of you, you are. 
I think the unfortunate reality is, is that many of us walked into church tonight feeling anxious about tomorrow. Maybe feeling anxious about something at work, about some relationship that you have. Maybe feeling relation. I mean, you're feeling anxious about how homesick you are. I know a lot of you here actually aren't from Wollongong, but have flown in or have driven in if you're from the country. Maybe you're finding anxious trying to build friends, or maybe you're anxious thinking about the future or finances. What does James say to us? Pray. Pray. Can I say something? Don't be fooled by the masks and the facade that people put up in our church. All of us here have got some troubles. There's different ones to each other. But James says pray. He says pray, which is great advice. And yet in reality... I don't know about you, but we don't tend to do this whenever we're feeling anxious. Instead, we want to try and fix things on ourselves. Which begs the question, why don't we pray? And look, this is like one of many potential reasons why. This one may hurt, but I think it's not controversial. I think it's pride. I think it's pride. You know, I think, I don't know about you, but I think the reason why I don't pray is because I've got this, I've got this sort of an attitude that I can handle these situations, I can handle these problems, that I can fix these things that are going on in my life. And so instead of relying upon God and His strength and His wisdom and His power, I try and relate upon my own, which is ridiculous. If there really is a God and He's all-powerful and He wants us to pray to Him, it's crazy. And I think sometimes we can forget that any prayer we have, any anxiety we have, any trouble we have is not demeaning to God. And we can come before Him in prayer. As most of you know, uh, I have two sons. They're here tonight, Elijah and Isaac. Uh, you're going to learn a bit more about my son Isaac now. Uh, Isaac is being toilet trained. Uh, and so he's got the wheeze covered, but the poos he's still trying to sort out. Um, and a few weeks ago, I went to Sydney and I was away from the family for a week. And I got a text message from my wife on the Friday I was coming home saying, you know, I'm looking forward to you coming home. I've got a gift for you. And so I'm like, oh, this is awesome. What a wife. You know, I'm thinking lint chocolate. I'm thinking a new shirt. I don't know, like some nice juice or like, I don't know, any something, right? Anyway, I walk home and that's what I'm expecting. But instead, the gift I received is not that good. Uh, you see, what happened is Isaac, like I said, he's still trying to learn uh, how to do the whole poo situation. Uh, and instead of asking his mum for help for cleaning himself up, he decided he'll look after it. Like, I've got this sort of an attitude. But he didn't quite understand what goes first, if you whether or not you do the poo first or the toilet paper first. And so what he did is he got the whole toilet paper roll and he clogged the whole toilet and then he did his poo and then he called for us to flush it. It didn't flush. And so I came home to a cloggy, pooey toilet as the gift from my wife. <laughs> Very thankful for that. You know, I, I think we're similar to Isaac, though, in that, in that essence when it comes to God. Eh? Like, like we think, no, no, I've got this. I know what I'm doing here. When in reality, we're just making a mess of things for our own, own selves. You know, if we've got troubles, let's pray. Let's pray. There's a quote, hopefully it'll come up on the screen, which I was reading this week, which I found quite helpful from Oswald Chambers. He says this, We tend to use prayer as a last resort, but God wants it to be our first line of defense. We pray when there's nothing else we can do, but God wants us to pray before we do anything at all. Most of us would prefer, however, to spend our time doing something that will get immediate results. We don't want to wait for God to resolve matters in His good time because His idea of good time is seldom in sync with ours. What would it look like for you to pray first the troubles that you have each day? When should we pray? When you're going have times of trouble. In times of trouble. 
Let's, let's look back at what James says here in verse 13 and, says, and see what else we should pray. In verse 13, James says this as well. He says, Is anyone happy? Let them sing song of praise. When should we pray? Well, when also when we are happy. Now, some of you here, I saw you, you walked in tonight, you were smiling from ear to ear, just happy, you're in a good mood. Maybe it's just been a good day, you know, the sun was out, maybe you went for a walk, maybe you had some good coffee, maybe you had some Chicos, I'm not too sure, but uh, maybe you're just in a good mood, like life is going okay, there's many things to be happy about and to rejoice in. And what James says to you is that you should sing, you should sing. Now, some of us are like, what do you mean sing? Is it, aren't we talking about prayer here? Like, is James getting a bit confused? Like, why is he mentioning singing here instead of praying? Well, I think because what James is trying to do here is he's trying to remind us of the intimate relationship between prayer and praise. You see, the book of Psalms, maybe you've heard of that book. The word psalm in Hebrew just means also song. So in many ways, it's the book of songs. And yet, if when you read the book of Psalms, you feel like they're intimate prayers between King David and the Lord. You see, there's such an intimate relationship between prayer and praise. And maybe you could say that praising God is a form of prayer, or prayer is a form of praise. Still not convinced? Think of the Lord's Prayer, how Jesus teaches us how to pray. What's the first thing he says? Hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. See, I wonder if we we understand the importance of praising God and how it's an intimate relationship to prayer. And so James says to us, if you are happy, you should sing. You should sing. Now, what stops us from doing this? What stops us from singing? Well, let, let me just play doctor here and I guess I hypothesize potentially a problem that's in your heart as well as my own. I think it can be pride. But I also think it can be not thinking that singing is important. You see, I think maybe in our culture, sometimes we, we've been deceived as to not see what the Bible teaches on singing, but thinking what our culture thinks of singing, and think it's not really that important or valued in church or outside of it. And so for that reason, let me just try and fight against some what I think is incorrect thinking. Number one, I think some people say, I don't like to sing because it's not really our culture. You know, I don't like to make noise because that's not what our culture does. I don't know if you've ever been to a sporting match, soccer match, a cricket match, tennis match, almost any sort of sporting culture in our country, you'll see songs. You'll see people making noises. You'll be seeing people rejoice over their idols, in many cases, kicking a rubber ball through some posts. Why can't we sing and rejoice over our Savior raising from the dead and conquering sin? Or what about some people who think, you know, no, I don't like to sing, uh, even though I love Jesus, because singing is uncomfortable, and I know God doesn't want me to be uncomfortable. Can I lovingly point something out to you? In heaven, there's not going to be denominational services. Okay, so there's not going to be like, God's going to be like, okay, all the Presbyterians, you go over there because you're really conservative. And uh, the Anglicans, you like liturgy, so you can go here in your confessions. The Baptists, you can go here. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. The drinking Baptists can go here. The non-drinking Baptists can go here. The dancing Baptists can go here. The non-dancing Baptists can go here. Uh, The Pentecostals, you can go over here. We don't want you anywhere near the Presbyterians. That could cause a fight. You know, like that's, we're not going to get to heaven and that's not going to happen. I wonder if you thought that through. Like, can, can I lovingly point something out to you? And look, this might hurt a little bit, but if you don't like praising God, if you don't like singing to Him, you're going to hate heaven. You're going to hate heaven. It's like we're not going to be doing that for eternity, but we're going to be doing that for a long time. Like, as in, that's a big component of what heaven is going to be, is us glorifying and praising our God. 
And this is another thing I want to say. I am so thankful that in our church context, the preaching of God's word is so highly valued. I'm so thankful for that. As your pastor, I'm so thankful for that. It's so important. This is God's word. And yet I think sometimes we make the mistake of the pendulum swing of not wanting to be like charismatic churches that we go to the other end of the pendulum and think that singing and praising God is not important. That we shouldn't be giving our all to praise our good God. And it's just not biblical. It's just not true. And so look, can I, can I ask you to consider why don't you sing loudly? Why don't you sing passionately? What stops you from singing praises to your good and glorious God? And like I said, maybe it's pride. Maybe it's fear. I don't, I'm not too sure. Maybe it's you don't want other people to think lowly of you and, and you're looking at what other people are doing and what they think of you and instead of thinking about what God thinks. Can I tell you this? Uh, some of you here have terrible voices. Uh, I'm not going to say who they are. Uh, that would be dangerous. Uh, and I'm one of them. I can tell you this. One of the most encouraging things is when you sit next to someone or stand next to someone at church and someone with a terrible voice praises God loudly. Because what it means is they, that they know that they have a good saviour rather than a good voice. And it's so encouraging. And on the flip side, it is so discouraging when you're in church and we're like, with these great lyrics about our great God and people who claim to follow and love Jesus just don't interact at all emotionally and don't want anything to do with praising God. It's heaps discouraging. Look, we have talented musicians, like as Trav and Annie in the band were like preparing, I was like here, and I was just so thankful to God for them. And they do what they can. They're practicing, they're here early, because they want to help you praise God. We know worship is not what, only what you do through music, it's a component of it, but it's a time where we gather as God's people to praise our glorious God. And my hope is, is that we engage in that and take it seriously and don't see it as inva- not valuable, because it really is. Because James says to us, when you are happy, and we've got many things to be happy about, may we sing. May we sing praises to our good God. Thirdly, James says, when you are sick, you should pray, and specifically call the elders. Now, I don't think this is anything that's controversial. I think you're like, yeah, that makes sense. When someone's sick, let's pray for them. But maybe there's some things in this passage you are like, oh, that was interesting. And I think mainly it's got to do with the oil. Uh, I don't know about you, but when I read this passage and it talks about elders placing oil on a sick person, I'm like, whoa, I haven't done that. What's going on here? So let me try and explain what's going on here when James talks about the elders praying for the sick and laying oil on them. I think there's probably two good interpretations of this uh, passage in regards to the oil. And I think one is for medical reasons and two is for symbolic reasons. Let me talk about the medical. Uh, Back in James's day, oil was basically used as a medicine for cleaning people and to helping people heal. Uh, If you think of the Good Samaritan parable, what happens is the Good Samaritan picks up the person who's been robbed and beaten, and he actually, I think, baths him or cleans him with oil and wine. So oil was used for medical reasons. Uh, And I I think that's a good interpretation of this passage, and and I think that's really helpful, because what that means, if someone is sick now, we should pray for them, but we should also send them to the doctor. That we should do both. That we should pray as well as seek medical help. And so that's the first interpretation of this passage, that it's used for medical reasons. Uh, but the second one is symbolic, symbolic reasons. The elders should put oil on someone who is sick, most likely someone who's not at church, by the way, because they had to call the elders to them. And I think what I mean by in terms of symbolic is when the elders do this, they're saying, hey, God, this is someone who's sick, someone we care about, someone we're dedicating to you. May you please heal them and show your love upon them. Now, if I'm honest with you, it sounds really weird. 
uh, I've never done this. Uh, and, and to be honest with you, I don't know what I would do. Like, do I pour like a whole liter of oil? Um, do I like get Woolworths brand oil? Do I get good oil? Do I get vegetable oil? Like, I don't know. Like, right, it sounds really weird. Um, and yet, if I'm honest, it's, it's actually, I reckon it's a, in the Bible, it's there. And that symbolic consecration that this is someone who's sick and we want to raise the Lord actually is a good application of this passage. Uh, this week, I met up with James Powell. A lot of you know James. Some of you don't. James is, I think he's like 26 or something. So he's quite young, uh, but he has Crohn's disease. And as a result, he's quite unwell. Uh, he's technically anorexic and he's my size, actually a bit bigger than me, and technically anorexic because he can't eat. But uh, by God's grace, actually, he's been seeing some uh, healing and some uh, progress, which is awesome the last few weeks. Uh, but I was chatting to him about this verse. And I was like, what do you think, James? Like, would you be up for me putting oil on you? <laughs> he was like, Joel, I have like a bowel disease. Like, I have had some awkward moments. He's like, bring it on, man, bring it on. So uh, I'll let you know how that goes, uh, but I'm not too sure. But the thing I think James is trying to, in particular, point out to us here is even though we can get stuck on the oil, is actually his main point here is the power of prayer. It's the power of prayer. So don't get stuck on the oil. It's nothing magical about it. It's nothing powerful about the oil. There's nothing powerful about the elders who are just church leaders. I'm one of the elders. Steve at the back is one and the pastors. Like, we're, we're godly men that as a church have, I guess, appointed to go lead you guys and pray for the sick. But at the end of the day, James is saying, no, the power's on the elders. The power is in prayer. That's why he also encourages not just the elders, but everyone in verse 16 to be praying for the sick as well. So may I remind you of that? May I encourage you to be praying for James and to be praying for other people in our church, to be praying for Lance. He's going to have an operation, for example, tomorrow where potentially he could lose his sight. Pray for Lance. Pray for your brothers and sisters because God answers prayer and through prayer, God heals. God heals. And all of that brings me to the second point that I think James wants us to learn about prayer, which is the power of prayer, the power of prayer. Let me read to us verse 15 and 16. James says this, And the prayer, often in faith, will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is, a powerful, is powerful and effective. Um, a few years ago, uh, when um, Emma was pregnant with our first boy, Elijah, uh, I remember being with Emma's family and then also at my family at different times. And at both times, everyone was like, oh, you're going to have a girl. You're going to have a girl, 100%, right? They're talking about girl names. They're listing off all the names they like. They're talking about the colored dresses that they're going to buy. And, and I was there, like, in the lounge room. And I'm like, hey, guys, guys, have you heard of this other gender called, like, male? Like, it's potential, 50% chance that we'll have a boy, right? They're like, no, Joel, go away. Don't want to listen to you. Don't want anything of it. Like, just not going to happen. We're going to have a girl. And so I was like, okay, okay, no worries. Uh, but I knew James... And I knew James chapter 5, verse 16, that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And so that's what I did. Uh, I prayed. I prayed. And I prayed for a boy. And then, by God's grace, I had Elijah. And because I'm a good husband that wants to see my wife flourish and understand scripture, I then like encourage her by quoting her this verse and, you know, just reminding her of, you know, what a great gift that, you know, prayer is for righteous people. Uh, and then, uh, when Emma was pregnant for the second time, same thing happened. Everyone's like, we're going to have a girl. We're going to have a girl. And I was like, I really wanted Eli to have a brother, right? I, I just was like, I really want to have a brother. And so, same thing. I'm like, yeah, no worries. I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray. 
Isaac was born. And I'm like, babe, just got to encourage you. Just let me quote you, James, again. Just want to let you, you know, meditate on this verse. Um, Emma's pregnant now, uh, due in December. Uh, and we would like a girl. I would like a girl. Uh, <laughs> We have two bodyguards to protect her, so I'm praying for a girl. So we'll see how righteous I am when it comes to December. Now, I joke around, but I really actually want you to memorize that verse. I actually want you to memorize that verse. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. It's powerful and effective. See, I mentioned before that maybe one reason why we don't pray is that we don't actually believe that prayer is powerful I, I, maybe I didn't mention that, but I mentioned it right now. I don't think we pray because we don't actually understand that prayer is powerful. Maybe a lot of us in this room theologically know this. You know, maybe we've got a book on prayer on our bookshelf. We know prayer is powerful theologically, intellectually, but practically, our lives don't show that. Our lives don't show that. And so I want to remind you of this biblical truth that prayer is powerful, that God listens to prayer, that God answers prayer. And that in many ways, prayers, prayer sorry, is the means of grace in which God uses to unleash his heavenly will here on earth. And if you're like, Joel, how do you know prayer is powerful? Well, let me give you a few examples from the scriptures. I was reading Joshua today, and in Joshua 10, Joshua prayed that the sun would stand still. And so it did. If you think of Moses and the Red Sea, he prayed that it would be parted, and so it was. If you think of Daniel, he prayed that he could interpret dreams, and so he was able to. Peter, the Apostle Peter, prayed that he could resurrect a little girl called Tabitha from the dead, and he was able to. We see that prayer is powerful through these incredible examples in the Scriptures, but also my guess is, if you're a follower of Jesus, you've seen answered prayer in your life as well. And most likely, you're just probably like me, you've got a memory of a goldfish when it comes to answered prayer. Like even this week, actually, I was praying for Sam to try and get a car. And like two days later, he's like, Joel, I got a car. I'm like, what? Like, prayer works? Prayer is powerful. And James wants to remind us of this in this passage by talking about how prayer can heal the sick, but also by reminding us of the example of Elijah. And so let's, let's talk this through. Now, like I said, I don't think you're going to be that blown away by the fact that prayer heals the sick. But I think there's a part in this passage that maybe you are a bit confused by. And my guess is it's a relationship between sin and sickness. The relationship between sin and sickness. Because what James is saying here is that there seems to be a relationship between sin and sickness. And in our world, in our culture, that seems like offensive. That seems crazy. And yet James says it right here. And so let me try and unpack this for us. What the Bible makes clear is that uh, God is not a God who punishes every single sin with some sort of suffering or sickness in this world. In other words, what the Bible makes clear is that God is not a God of retributive justice, that if you do wrong, he'll punish you straight away. Judgment is coming, yes, but in this world, we're not told that. And if you're like, how do you know this? Read the book of Job. You know, I mentioned him last week, but he was a righteous man, and yet he went through suffering. And so the Bible is quite clear that at all times, you can never say that some sin has led to some suffering. You can't do that. But on occasions, there is a relationship. We see this in this chapter here in James, but also you see it in 1 Corinthians when the Apostle Paul talks about communion and how some people have taken it inappropriately and as a result some have fallen sick and some have died. So it's important that we understand this. See, I think this is hard for us to digest and to take in, but the reality is, is that some physical sickness, some mental illness is actually due to some sin in our life that we haven't confessed and repented of before the Lord. 
Now, like I said, don't try and, like, it doesn't occur for all occasions, okay? So don't be like Job's friends, and when people are sick, go up to them and say, what sin have you done? Like, let's, you know, repent. But if you have a friend who is sick or going through things, like, instead pray that the Holy Spirit will work through their heart. And if there is sin, they'll repent of that. And if it's not, that the Holy Spirit will encourage them, just like Job needed, as they were to persevere through that sickness. Nevertheless, James says that there can be a relationship between sickness and sin. And so what James says here is that we should confess our sins to each other and pray for each other so that we may be healed. I think James does this because he knows that confession is not only good for the soul but also for the body. And so because I, I love you as your pastor, can I ask you a painful but simple question? Is there sin in your life that you need to repent of? Is there sin in your life that you need to give up to God? Is there any darkness in your heart that you're trying to hide from the Father which you need to bring into the light? And, and look, can I, can I say this? Uh, I think sometimes we try and play this like horrible game of hide and seek with God and we think that we can keep secrets from Him and not have to repent to Him of certain things and we think we're all clever and we're playing this game. When the reality is, we're just like playing hide and go seek between a father and a son. Like I know where my children are all times when we play hide and seek. Yet sometimes we think we can hide secrets from God or we think if he was to know, then he wouldn't love us or forgive us. And yet he knows. He knows absolutely everything that you have done. He knows absolutely everything that goes through your heart as well as your actions. And get this, he still loves you to the point that he sent his son to die for you. What he calls for you to do is to confess and come before him. Ask for forgiveness. So is there sin in our life that we need to repent of? But not only is there sin that we need to confess to God, is there sin in our life that we can confess to one another? Like, Did you notice that James said confess to each other, not necessarily to God? Yeah, I find that really interesting. But those who have authentic faith, they understand the importance of vulnerability. They understand the importance of confession. They understand the importance of trying to kill sin, the importance of how we need each other to encourage one another in our walk as we try to follow Jesus. And so for those of you here who call WBC your home, and you're a follower of Jesus, and in particular if you're in a home group, if you're not, get in one. But if you are, can I encourage you? Can I ask you, when was the last time you confessed sin to your home group? And can I encourage you to do so? To be bold, to be bold sorry, and to be vulnerable, knowing that no one is perfect, we all need Christ Jesus. We're all dealing with sin. But if I'm honest with you, I think sometimes you can feel a bit disconnected from the church and from its community because you don't want to open up and be vulnerable in it. You want to put up this wall between you and other people. And James says, confess to one another, pray for one another, and you will be healed. And can, like, can, I, can I acknowledge something? I've confessed sin. I think the hardest is to my wife, but I've done it to my friends and home group. And look, I know it comes at a cost. I know it's not easy. I know it's terrifying. And yet James says there's actually a deeper cost if you don't confess sin. There's a greater cost if you don't. And so look, can I encourage you to do this? My, my hope is, is that our church is not known as a church where everyone's got everything together. My hope is, is that our church is known as a place where it's okay not to be okay. A church where we can encourage one another and talk deeply about issues that are going on in our hearts. 
That if we're struggling with, I know, pornography or depression or anger or anxiety, if our marriages are weak, whatever's going on, if we're struggling as parents, if our children are not behaving the way we hope, that we would pray for one another. That's my hope. And that's the power of prayer that it can lead to healing us and we can make us more like Christ. Later on, we're going to spend time after a song, just for a minute, uh, just in silence, thinking about maybe some stuff that we want to repent of and confess to the Lord. And so maybe let that percolate in your brain. But for now, let, let's move on and let's look at Elijah, who's an example of the power of prayer. Verse 17. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. It's interesting that he says that. Uh, he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. Now, Elijah, I like Elijah, named my firstborn son after Elijah, so I like him. He's a cool prophet, quite a powerful dude, uh, and, but his power came through prayer. Uh, what you see in the Old Testament is we get introduced to Elijah in the book of Kings, and in Kings what happens is Elijah comes in and God's people, Israel, are worshipping idols. They're not worshipping God. And so Elijah comes in to point out their sin and, and also to bring judgment. And one thing that he does is he actually prays that the rains would stop coming from uh, heaven to earth, and so there'd be a drought in the land. He does this, God answers his prayer, there's no more rain. But then there's a few other things that Elijah does. For example, he meets a boy that dies and he rises that boy from the dead. He then comes across the, uh, the prophets of Baal, they're another religion, and they're mocking him. And so he says, all right, let's have a, pray, like a prayer off. So they both build these two altars uh, and the, the Baal prophets, they pray and pray for like lightning or fire to come from the sky and light their fire. Nothing happens. Uh, Elijah does it and his altar is full of water, like it's drenched. He prays, fire just comes from the sky, boom, like lights it up. Uh, and as a result, he gets some enemies. So like the prophets of Baal don't like Elijah. They're trying to kill him. And so, you know, God protects him. He, he takes him to this cave. And because Elijah, it's a drought, can't find water. He can't go out and get food. He'll get killed. You know, good luck. God looks after him, right? Like he miraculously gives him water. He then also gets birds to like come give him lunch and dinner and breakfast. Like he gets looked after, right? And he, and he seems like a superhero. But then all of a sudden, there's this woman, right? And she, her name's Jezebel, and she's just crazy. And she like has it in for Elijah, wants to kill him. And for some reason, he's afraid of her. He's afraid of her. Now, I say for some reason, because I just don't get it. Like, if I was Elijah, and I had like been able to ri- rise people, raise people from the dead and bring fire from the sky, I'd be like, woman, are you crazy? Like, I will annihilate you with one prayer, right? And if you kill me, I can just resurrect from the dead. I don't know, like, God is that good, and yet he, on the other hand, he complains, he moans, he, and at one point even says to God, God, can you just kill me? Can you just kill me? It's like pretty incredible when you read the story of Elijah. You know, this is what James is trying to say to us. Notice verse 17, Elijah was a human being. Get that, he didn't say Elijah was a superhero, but human as we are. That, that he doubted God, that he struggled like we struggled. That he feared like we feared, that we were, he was anxious like we're anxious. And yet at the same time, he's a model to us of the power of prayer. That God does, works powerfully through prayer. May we take that as an encouragement. Now, disclaimer here, I don't know if you're going to be able to raise people from the dead or have fire come from the sky, but God will answer your prayer. That God will see your friends come to know Christ. That God will grow you in holiness. That God will provide for you. That God will be there for you. Come before him and pray. Not because you have to, I mean, not because, yeah, you have to, but because you can, and it's a gift that God gives you. 
Now, if you're some of you like, Joel, I'm really terrible at praying. Like, I really just don't know what to do. Like, how do you do this? Three ridiculously quick tips. Number one, pray with others. Pray with others. You, you can learn from them. It's really helpful for you. It's good discipline. Pray with other people. Number two, pray through Scripture. Uh, Scripture is a real gift to us, and it teaches you how to pray. So pray through it. Read it. Pray to God that, to help you understand it. But tip number three, this is a weird one, but it's helpful for me. Uh, pray with music in the background. I don't know why, but I find that helpful, and it helps me to actually concentrate and pray to God. Three incredible t- quick tips. Now, maybe some of you are thinking, okay, Joel, so prayer is powerful. I get that. But what I don't get is how can it be powerful when I've seen so many times the prayers not be answered? Like, how can you say to me prayer is powerful, and yet I've prayed so many times for something, and God has not answered that prayer? Well, I want to remind you of Jesus' final prayer. I don't know if you remember, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's there praying for hours to his father. And one of his prayer points was, Father, take this cup from me. In other words, Father, please, if there's any other way, don't let me go through the cross. And was Jesus righteous? Yeah, he's pretty righteous. And yet that prayer was unanswered. Not because God is a bad father, but instead because God is a great father, a great God. He knew that by Christ going to the cross, that A, Jesus would be resurrected, but B, there'd be salvation for us from Satan's sin and death. And so know this, whenever there's a no to your prayer, trust God. Know he's a good father. Know that he has got you in his hands. See, my hope is as we leave here, knowing prayer is powerful with confidence that God wants us to pray, that he answers our prayer. But you know what's interesting is that James doesn't finish his book on prayer. Instead, let me just quickly read to you verse 19 to 20. Let's come towards a close. James says this, My brothers and sisters, if any one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover a multitude of sins. Throughout this whole series, I've been wanting you to look inward. Look inward. Look at your faith. Is it authentic? Look at these different topics that we've been talking about. How are you going with these things? Where can you grow? Look inward. Look inward. And yet, at the same time, I said to you at the start, look outward. Know that your faith matters. Know that authentic faith makes a difference to the world around you. And I find really interesting that James is the way he finishes. You know, this is what I love about James. It's so different to Paul, right? Like when Paul finishes a letter, he's like, and give each other like a brotherly kiss and greet that person over there whom I love so dearly. You know, James, he's just like, none of that. It's just like, if anyone's wandering, bring them back. Bring them back. He's like, look at inward, look at your own faith, but also look outward and care that other people around you have authentic faith as well. And so this is the final question. Do you have authentic faith? Do you have authentic faith? Do you love Jesus? Do you want to be like him? Are you seeking your best not just to be a hearer of God's word, but to be a doer? And tonight, may we start off by trying to pray to our good God more, because we know that prayer is powerful, and that he's a good father that listens to us. So on that note, I'm going to pray. Father God, we thank you so much that you are a gracious God, whose love covers a multitude of sins. Lord, if there's any of us here tonight that are wandering a little bit from you, Lord, I pray that you bring them back. And Father, if there's people in our life whom we know who are also wandering, I pray, Lord, that you may use us in a loving way to encourage them to come back to Christ, to know that no one is unsavable, no one is unforgivable, no one is unchangeable, that your grace is greater than any sin. Lord, I pray that you may cultivate in our hearts by your spirit authentic faith, that you help us to pray more because you are a good God. And you answer prayer, and that prayer is powerful. 
Lord, I pray that you help to bridge the gap between what we believe and how we act, and that we may be more like your son, Jesus. Help us to pray to you, but also help us to praise you, because you are good, glorious, and great. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.